black people had to leave the island of Palm Beach by sunset. Of course, no Jews were allowed to have property there. How I turned out to be a human being, in spite of all of that, I really don't know. Maybe because I was not theirs. Straight people have lined up ministers, senators, barristers, journalists, have lined up to tell me what homophobia is and to tell me what I am allowed to feel oppressed by. Welcome to This Way Out, the international LGBTQ radio magazine. I'm Lucia Chappell. Greece joins the Marriage Equality Club, the lives and times of Edward Albee, and Irish homophobes feel the wrath of Panty Bliss. Those stories and more this week because you've chosen This Way Out. I'm Marcos Najera. And I'm Brian DeShazer. With NewsRap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBTQ communities around the world for the week ending February 17th, 2024. Greece is now the 37th country where same-gender couples can get married. The civil marriage bill includes adoption rights. Parliament voted decisively on February 15th, 106 in favor, 76 opposed, and two abstentions. Even intense opposition from the politically powerful Greek Orthodox Church failed to block it. The legislation was crafted by the center-right government of Kiriakos Mitsotakis. He hailed its passage on social media, calling it a milestone for human rights, reflecting today's Greece, a progressive and democratic country passionately committed to European values. According to opposition lawmaker Vasilis Stigas, marriage equality will open the gates of hell and perversion. Queer couples can adopt each other's children under the new laws. Under the civil partnership laws that have been in effect since 2015, only the biological parents of the couple's children had parental rights. The couples can be legally recognized as parents of a child born via surrogacy abroad, but they may not receive surrogacy services in Greece. The new laws will take effect as soon as they're published in the official government gazette. Outside the parliament building, LGBTQ people and their allies were celebrating. Stella Belia of the queer parents group Rainbow Families told Reuters, This is a historic moment. This is a day of joy. Nepal has its first legally married lesbian couple. Anju Devi Shreshthra and Saprita Garung registered their marriage on February 11th in the Himalayan nation's capital city, Kathmandu. Venerable Nepalese activist and former MP Sunil Babu Pant called it the first case of a lesbian couple officially getting registered for their marriage in South Asia. Equality advocates like the non-governmental organization Mayaku Pahichan Nepal have been pushing for the rights of sexual minority communities. A press statement from the group whose name means recognition of love was jubilant about the campaign's success in getting officially registered same-sex marriage after more than two decades of struggle. Nepal's Supreme Court opened the marriage equality floodgates in June 2023 with an interim order that the government legalize same-gender marriage. 
In November, the federal government recognized the 1997 Hindu marriage ceremony of Maya Garung and Sarendra Pandey. Since Garung is a transgender woman and Nepal does not recognize gender changes, it was accepted as a historic first marriage of two gay men. Two cases challenging the sodomy laws of St. Vincent and the Grenadines were rejected by a high court justice on February 16th. Two gay men from the main island of St. Vincent contested the constitutionality of the laws that criminalize private consensual adult same-gender sex in 2019. The Caribbean nation's colonial-era statutes punish anal intercourse with up to 10 years in prison and up to five years for gross indecency. Cristian González Cabrera is a senior researcher at Human Rights Watch. He called the ruling by Justice Esco Lorene Henry that upheld those laws a travesty of justice and tacit state endorsement of anti-queer bias. Plaintiff Sean McLeish expressed disappointment in the ruling when he spoke with a Washington Blade from his U.S. home. He said... We will be discussing our options with my legal team because freedom and equality is worth fighting for. Similar sodomy laws have been repealed in the Caribbean nations of Trinidad and Tobago, Barbados, St. Kitts and Neves, and Antigua and Barbuda in recent years. In addition to St. Vincent and the Grenadines, laws punishing same-gender sex remain in effect in St. Lucia, Dominica, Jamaica, Guyana, and Grenada. A trans man in Western Japan can change the gender marker on his official documents without having undergone surgical sterilization. The February 14th granting of his request was the first judgment since the nation's Supreme Court struck down their requirement in October 2023. The Okiyama Family Court ruled that the plaintiff's hormone therapy qualified him for the legal gender affirmation. It ordered the local family registry to officially recognize 50-year-old Takita Usui as male. The victorious trans man was so excited and told television news crews, it's like I'm standing at the start line of my new life. A top host on state-run Polish television apologized for years of anti-queer rhetoric spawned by the Law and Justice Party. It's another sign of the seismic shift under Poland's new liberal centrist coalition since the previous right-wing government lost its parliamentary majority in recent national elections. Wuszczek Zelag told a February 11th national audience, as translated by The Independent, For many years in Poland, shameful words have been directed at numerous individuals simply because they chose to decide for themselves who they are and whom they love. LGBT plus people are not an ideology, but people with specific names, faces, relatives, and friends. Zelag directly addressed his two queer activist guests, Bart Staszewski and Yaya Heban. The groundbreaking mea culpa also marked the first time in almost a decade that LGBTQ people had been invited guests on the network. The host said, all these people should hear the word sorry somewhere. This is where I apologize. Such statements would have been unthinkable under the previous regime, which supported the condemnation of LGBT ideology by local jurisdictions and their declarations as LGBT-free zones. Tashevsky said both he and Heban were a bit scared to walk into the studio. 
After eight years of not being visible, of being some sort of lesser citizen, both Yaya and I were quite astonished by this. It was a touching moment. Finally, some people in the Spanish city of Seville apparently prefer to see their Christ crucified rather than resurrected. A new Holy Week poster by internationally recognized artist Salastino Garcia Cruz has traditionalists complaining that the portrait of Jesus is not one suffering on the cross, but a young, good-looking guy in a loincloth. He wears a glorified crown of gold ornaments instead of thorns, and the physical wounds are understated. In the words of Barcelona gallerist Artur Ramon, the depiction is effeminate or androgynous in a way. He told the BBC, Spain is a country that is still quite homophobic, and people don't like that he is represented in this way for a festival that marks the passion of Christ in his final moments of life. Trending social media comments characterize the portrait as offensive, evil, and too sexualized for Holy Week. A change.org petition calling for the portrait's removal has thus far attracted more than 10,000 signatures, apparently to no effect. Cruz says his son modeled for the portrait. Horacio Garcia has told the press he's received many compliments on his being too handsome and too attractive. Seville Mayor Jose Luis Sanz likes the portrait and called the outrage artificial. He said that some posters are riskier, some more classical, some are more daring. The artist defended his work in an interview with the Spanish publication El Mundo. A gay Christ because he looks sweet and is handsome. Come on. We're in the 21st century. That's News Wrap, global queer news with attitude for the week ending February 17th, 2024. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap is written by Greg Gordon, edited by Lucia Chappelle, produced by Brian DeShazer and brought to you by you. Thank you. Help keep us in ears around the world at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast and much more. For This Way Out, I'm Marcos Najera. Stay healthy. And I'm Brian DeShazer. Stay safe. Our listeners support This Way Out in many ways. By subscribing to our e-newsletter. Email us at info at thiswayout.org. And through your financial contributions to our program. More information about how you can give is online at thiswayout.org. Thank Thank you. you. Now it turns out that gay people are not the victims of homophobia. Homophobes are the victims of homophobia. Don't mess with an Irish drag queen. Later in the program. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Virginia Woolf, Virginia Woolf. Who's afraid of Virginia? (laughs) In the early months of 2009, Broadway audiences were flocking to Billy Elliot with music by Elton John, the diversity-rich and sexually open Avenue Q, and a revival of Blythe Spirit by the classic gay wit Noah Coward. Commercial productions like The Lion King, Shrek, and The Little Mermaid were becoming the rage. It was against that backdrop that Pulitzer Prize and Tony Award-winning playwright provocateur Edward Albee sat down for a conversation with This Way Out correspondents Dixie Trichel and John Townsend. 
It had been four years since the successful revival of Albie's Broadway debut, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, a play the Pulitzer Advisory Board would not honor in 1962 because of its profanity and sexual themes, no matter what the drama jury said. In Albie's words, his plays were a stand against the fiction that everything in this slipping land of ours is peachy keen, and that's a message that bears repeating today. I was an orphan. I was adopted into a rich family. I, you know, their values were, I thought, pretty unfortunate. Even very young, I didn't like their values. My adoptive family took me down to Palm Beach, Florida every winter when they had a house on the ocean. You can't imagine how terrible Palm Beach was. Black people had to leave the island of Palm Beach by sunset. Of course, no Jews were allowed to have property there. How I turned out to be a human being, in spite of all of that, I really don't know. Maybe because I was not theirs. As you were deciding to become a playwright... uh... I decided to become a playwright because I failed at everything else. (laughs) I was incompetent to become a composer, which is what I wanted first. Oh, you know, I notice in your plays that they're very musical. Yeah, they are indeed. What happened then when you actually began to write plays? With the exception of one play I wrote when I was 12 and a half. The exception (laughs) of that, I didn't write my first play, The Zoo Story, until I was 28, and I'd failed at all of the branches of writing. When I wrote The Zoo Story, I realized something interesting. Edward, this is better than anything else you've ever written, Mm -hmm. and this may be okay. When I wrote that play, I had a sense, you know? How do you think American theater has changed from when you were young to what's happening today? The terrible commercial things that have happened to theater, the awful killing hand of commerce has really done serious damage to our theater. The costs of producing a play now are prohibitive, and the cost of an audience going to a play is absolutely ridiculous. Mm -hmm. When we did my play, The Zoo Story and Crap's Last Tape, off-Broadway in 1960, the tickets were $2.50. Now off-Broadway, the tickets are 75 bucks, mm. and inflation hasn't done that. With inflation, it would only be a third of that. All of the costs have gone up, and so you can't get young people going to the theater, and you can't get low-income people going to the theater, and that's who we need there. Well, and you've talked about uh, the need for people to be rebellious and for young people to rebel against things, and that comes up in your plays. Yeah, but only against the things that should be rebelled against. That's what's wrong with our educational system. We don't educate people in something that used to be called civics, where you were taught how government functions and where the errors are. Nobody's taught that stuff anymore, so a lot of people are rebelling without knowing how to fix anything. I used to talk to students in the early 60s during the rebellious times, And uh, their hearts were in the right place, their minds were in the right place, but you couldn't talk uh, dialectic to them for more than two minutes before they were out of their depth. That was a shame. If they'd known more specifically about how to fix what they were angry about, uh, we could have accomplished a lot more. Mr. Albert, you've talked about the need for arts education as well, and can you tell us a little bit about why we're not having that? You can't have a civilization without a a comprehensive arts understanding in the country. Our public schools do not teach the arts. I went to private schools, being adopted by that rich family. I went to private schools. I got a great education. And most people aren't getting that education now, and it's terrible. And, And we're supposed to be a civilization.
You've always rejected labels, even the term absurdist playwright, even though you're considered by many people America's first great absurdist Yeah, because most people don't know what the term means. You've also rejected gay playwright. Well, I'm, I'm a playwright who happens to be gay. Does that make me a gay playwright? I don't know. Maybe if you only write about gay themes, then you're a gay playwright. I don't know. All labels diminish in some way. Going to the theater should make you participate in your own life. You've said sure. things to that effect. I don't think you should go to the theater and not have anything happen to you. I think every time you go to any art experience, you should be changed, or you mm -hmm. should learn something about yourself that you didn't know before. That's the only way you can keep your own intellect evolving. You've been listening to highlights from a 2009 interview with playwright Edward Albee by correspondents Dixie Trichel and John Townsend of KFAI Minneapolis-St. Paul's Fresh Fruit. Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Virginia Woolf, Virginia Woolf. I am George. I was afraid of Virginia Woolf. I am George. I am. Good news. Good news. Ain't that good news? Hi, I'm Brian DeShazer. This Way Out Preservation and Access Project is well underway. Its historic collection of over 1,550 broadcasts are at George Blood Audio in Philadelphia being transferred from reel-to-reel -reel tape and cassettes. Thanks to funding from the American Archive of Public Broadcasting and the University of California Santa Barbara Libraries. Special thanks to Keith Brown and Gay Spirit Radio for lending us cassette copies for the project. Stay tuned for updates in the coming months. Up behind the bus stop in the toilets of the street There are traces of a killing on the floor beneath your feet Mixed in with the piss and beer our blood stains on the floor From the boy who got his head kicked in a night or two before Homophobia, the worst disease You can't love who you want to love in times like these Think you know homophobia when you see it? That's what Irish drag queen Panty Bliss thought when she appeared on an RTE program in 2014. The national broadcaster was quick to pay a big settlement to the journalist and the Roman Catholic think tank Bliss called out by name who threatened to sue for libel. Allies and opponents carried on the heated debate over the entertainer's comments versus RTE's settlement. Panty Bliss and her alter ego Rory O'Neill got time to respond at Dublin's Abbey Theatre, and it's a reply that stands the test of time. Have any of you ever been standing at a pedestrian crossing when a car goes by and in it are a bunch of lads, and they lean out the window as they go by and shout, Fag! and throw a milk carton at you. Now, it doesn't really hurt. I mean, after all, it's just a wet carton, and in many ways, they're right. I am a fag. <laughs> so it doesn't hurt, but it feels oppressive. And when it really does hurt is afterwards, because it's afterwards that then I wonder and worry and obsess over what was it about me? I mean, what did they see in me? What was it that gave me away? 
I hate myself for wondering that. It feels oppressive, and the next time that I'm standing at a pedestrian crossing, I hate myself for it, but I check myself to see what is it about me that gives the gay away, and I check myself to make sure that I'm not doing it this time. Have any of you ever come home in the evening and turned on the television, and there is a panel of people, you know, nice people, respectable people, smart people, the kind of people who probably make good neighborly neighbors, the kind of people who write for newspapers, and they're all sitting around and they are having a reasoned debate on the television, a reasoned debate about you, about what kind of person you are, about whether or not you're capable of being a good parent, about whether you want to destroy marriage, about whether or not you're safe around children, about you know, whether or not God herself thinks you're an abomination, about whether, in fact, maybe you are intrinsically disordered. And even the nice TV presenter lady that you feel is like almost a friend because you see her being nice on TV all the time, even she thinks it's perfectly okay that they're all having this reasoned debate about you and about who you are and about what rights you deserve or don't deserve. And that feels oppressive. Have you ever been on a crowded train with one of your best gay friends and inside a tiny part of you is cringing because he is being so gay? And you find yourself trying to compensate for his gayness by butching up a little, or by trying to steer the conversation onto safer, straighter territory. And this is you who has spent the last 35 years of your life trying to be the best gay possible. And yet there is still this small part of you that is embarrassed by his gayness. And I hate myself for that. And that feels oppressive. And when I am standing at a pedestrian bloody light, I am checking myself. Have you ever gone into your favorite neighborhood cafe with the paper that you buy every day? And you open it up and inside is a 500 word opinion written by a nice middle class woman, the kind of woman who probably gives to charity, the kind of woman who you would be totally happy to leave your children with. And she is arguing over 500 words so reasonably about whether or not you should be treated less than everybody else, about arguing that you should be given fewer rights than everybody else. And when you read that, and then the woman at the next table gets up and excuses herself to squeeze by you and smiles at you, and you smile back and nod and say, no problem, and inside you wonder to yourself, does she think that about me too. And that feels oppressive. And you go outside and you stand at the pedestrian crossing and you check yourself. And I hate myself for that. Have you ever turned on the computer and you see videos of people who are just like you in countries that are far away and countries that are not far away at all and they are being imprisoned and beaten and tortured and murdered and executed because they are just like you. And that feels oppressive. Three weeks ago, I was on the television. And I said that I believe that people who actively campaign for gay people to be treated less or treated differently 
are, in my gay opinion, homophobic. Now, some people, people who actively campaign for gay people to be treated less under the law, took great exception to that characterization, and they threatened legal action against me and RTE. Now, RTE, in its wisdom, decided incredibly quickly to hand over a huge sum of money to make it all go away. I haven't been quite so lucky. And for the last three weeks, I have been lectured to by heterosexual people about what homophobia is and about who is allowed to identify it. Straight people have lined up ministers, senators, barristers, journalists, have lined up to tell me what homophobia is and to tell me what I am allowed to feel oppressed by. People who have never experienced homophobia in their lives, people who have never checked themselves at a pedestrian crossing, have told me that unless I am being thrown into prison or herded onto a cattle truck, then it is not homophobia. And that feels oppressive. And so now, Irish gay people, we find ourselves in this ludicrous situation where we are not only not allowed to say publicly what we feel oppressed by, we're not even allowed to think it because the very definition, our definition, has been disallowed by our betters. And for the last three weeks, I've been denounced from the floor of the Oireachtas to newspaper columns to the seething morass of internet commentary denounced for using hate speech because I dare to use the word homophobia and a jumped up queer like me should know that the word homophobia is no longer available to gay people which is a spectacular and neat Orwellian trick because now it turns out that gay people are not the victims of homophobia homophobes are the victims <laughs> of homophobia <laughs> say that it's not true, because I don't hate you. <laughs> I do, it is true, believe that almost all of you are probably homophobes. But I'm a homophobe. I mean, it would be incredible if we weren't. I mean, to grow up in a society that is overwhelmingly and stiflingly homophobic and to somehow escape unscathed would be miraculous. So I don't hate you because you're homophobes. I actually admire you. I admire you because most of you are only a bit homophobic. And to be honest, considering the circumstances, that is pretty good going. But I do sometimes hate myself. I hate myself because I f***ing check myself when standing at pedestrian crossings. And sometimes I hate you for doing that to me. But not right now. Right now, I like you all very much for giving me a few moments of your time. And for that, I thank you.
was Rory O'Neill, a.k.a. Panty Bliss, speaking at Dublin's Abbey Theatre in February of 2014. Thanks for choosing This Way Out, brought to you by the nonprofit Overnight Productions. News Wrap was reported this week by Marcos Nahara and Brian DeShazer and produced by Brian DeShazer. Dixie Trichel and John Townsend were our archival correspondents. You heard music from the Max Dugan Returns motion picture soundtrack and by Sam Cooke and Chumbawamba. Kim Wilson composed and performed our theme music. This Way Out thanks the Kicking Assets Fund of the Tides Foundation and Richard Merck and Brad Payton of Silicon Valley. Listener donors make this program possible. Ask us about how you can join them. Look for This Way Out Radio on social media. Email us at info at thiswayout.org or write to us at P.O. Box 1065, Los Angeles, California, 90078, USA. For coordinating producer Greg Gordon and everyone at This Way Out, I'm Lucia Chappelle. Thanks for listening online at thiswayout.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And on WPSU, Altoona, Bradford, Clearfield, Dubois, Huntington, Kane State College, Pennsylvania, CHMA, Sackville, New Brunswick, KCMJ, Colorado Springs, Colorado, and a wide array of community terrestrial and internet radio stations around the world, including this one. Stay healthy, stay safe, and stay tuned, y'all.